Hello and welcome to Amnesty's In A Nutshell podcast. This is the third and final part of the mini-series where we speak to transgender people about their experiences. First off, we chat to Amnesty employee Louise. I guess I had two alter egos. I had the male alter ego and the female alter ego. Then Louise swaps seats and interviews boxing promoter Kelly Maloney. It wasn't until my father died that I actually came to terms with myself and started my process of transitioning. And finally, we speak to Dr. Kate Stone about the bigotry of strangers. Someone like attacked me, beat me up and pulled a wig off my head. And the bouncers came in and dragged me out by my arms and legs. Louise has worked with Amnesty UK for several years and was kind enough to share her story with us. I began by asking her when she first felt her body didn't match her gender. I would say my early teens. It was just a general feeling more like a, or a hard and fast uh, sensation or anything. It was just a, a general feeling that something wasn't right. You know, I didn't question it any more than that and probably too young to understand it, so just went on with life. It was quite a long way after that point that I managed to figure out what was going on. Did you share how you felt with people, with no. like friends or family or...? No, I didn't. No, because it was so scary. Really sort of a scary, you know, feeling and realisation that something wasn't right and just this desire to try and express some part of me as being female or feminine. It was something that, um, yeah, I was afraid of. I was really quite afraid of it. And we're talking about the early, middle, late 60s. So, you know, that was a factor in it as well. It wasn't anything that I thought I was brave enough to go and, you know, get medical help for or assistance for. I, you know, had this sensational, deep-rooted thing that there was something wrong with me or something that wasn't, I wasn't like any other normal boy growing up. And the realisation came to me as to, or the thing that opened the window, is I found some sort of health magazine, as I used to call them in those days, uh, aka soft porn. And there was a transvestite in this book that they were talking about, and that's when I had the realisation of what these sensations. So I had these sensations from when I was about 10 or 13 or something. But it wasn't until I was 18 or so that I actually realised what the answer was. And then it was quite a shock. There is no way on earth that I can actually talk to anybody and admit that I might have some sort of transvestism going on inside me. So, so I even shut it away even more. What was like the, the catalyst for you to make the change? Oh, the catalyst was my age, I guess. And because, you know, because it was becoming more accepted as I was getting older, it be was becoming more of an issue with my life. And especially as it was become more socially accepted to, to basically come out as having gender dysphoria. Well, it wasn't, I didn't really have a hard and fast plan. It sort of just sort of naturally happened. So, actually, fact, I did meet some new people and I found out this one particular lady was actually going to work as herself, and I was sort of gobsmacked. 
and as I said, I, t- I sort of come out of a one of my off periods where I hadn't been thinking about it, and I'd thrown the key away and learnt about this this um, lady. She was going to work at the British Museum as herself, even had an ID with her with her name on it, and everything, and I was. I was pretty gobsmacked. That was sort of the catalyst. I thought, I can do that. And that would all really bring satisfaction to my life. So then I guess that's basically when I started pushing my boundaries within the relationship, the marriage I was in. At the time I was married, been married for um, roughly 30 odd years had two children, my daughter had left home at that time, but my son was still living at home. And then, um, I mean, it didn't, like I said, it didn't happen uh, like a plan. At one stage I did have a, uh, luckily, a job that actually, actual fact, that's probably a significant part of my life, is that I had a job for 18 years where I was away a lot of time on business. I would take advantage of that to go out. I guess I had two alter egos. I had the male alter ego and the female alter ego. I actually used to go to the Campanile, local Campanile, where I use it as my changing room or whatever, because it was relatively cheap to hire a room for a night. So I'd go there, get changed, go out, come back, get changed, come back home again, with a dirty great hold all full of stuff. I used to go through these 10-year stints where I could deal and put it away and chuck it away in a cupboard and lock it, lock the key up and chuck it the key away and forget about being the real me. And then, in a, you know, sometime in the next 10 years it would sort of crop up again and I'd have to go out for a few times and then it would satisfy me and I'd be able to tuck it away again. So, But that said, having this job that allowed me to go out when I was away in business helped a lot to keep it, to stop me going mad, I suppose you could say. So that was a bit of a relief valve for nearly nearly 20 years, of me being able to do what I wanted when I wanted, you know, providing I did some creative scheduling. <laughs> and yes, it worked. But then I lost that job in about early 2000, so that sort of put a lot of pressure back on me and my, obviously to my family. I basically said to my ex that I needed some more time to express myself as who I perceived myself to be. And eventually she couldn't deal with it and she announced she was leaving me. I mean, I had sort of told her before we got married that I thought that I was different to other other guys and that I was, I can't remember exactly the phrase I used, but just I was different and I, uh, and I had some female traits in me. So I did actually warn her, or not warn her, but I did tell her that but we still got married, but it didn't, it never made it easier. We went through different stages in our marriage. Some stages you could deal with it, some sometimes you couldn't deal with it. So and in the end, when I said I wanted more a bit more freedom, be my female alter ego, then she announced she was leaving me. 
So as soon as she announced she was leaving me, I think I went to see my GP about a month before she left. And then after she'd gone, I had a meeting with a local consultant. And then I got a referral to the uh, gender identity clinic. It just felt such a relief not to have to leave two bloody lives all the time, you know. And then that's, you know, I can't put, probably emphasise it more than that. It really was you know, a total pain, it really was. And it was such a relief. At last, after all those years, I was able to be me. And I'd already been starting doing, you know, getting rid of beard and stuff like that. and. I'd been growing my hair out and um, stuff like that. And at the same time, I discussed with my employer possible plan for transitioning. So, you know, I was quite enjoying life. Although it was actually thinking about it now, a bit traumatic, a marriage ending after 32 years, I just had this freedom and space to be be and be me and as soon as my wife left I basically socialized as myself I already had two separate basic social circles so there was the male social circle and there was the the female one so basically I just left the male one behind I was married and you tend to really socialize with your spouse more than anybody else when you're in that sort of relationship and, you know, we practically did everything together. So, you know, I actually didn't socialise much outside of my ex and with her friends anyway. So apart from losing them, I had to reinvent the wheel for effectively. And I'm still doing it now. It's not, it hasn't been easy. In fact, you know, I'm still quite lonely from time to time because I just don't have people to interact with apart from at work. And what about people outside your social circle? How did your work colleagues react? I was working um, for a large automotive manufacturer in Essex. You know, work colleagues, some of them accepted it and some of them didn't. It was, I have to say, it was mostly men that, that had the problem rather than other females that had the problem. But, you know, I was expecting it to some extent. But I actually transitioned in a very male-dominated industry, so... I think I got off quite lightly, and I don't know why, but then part of the thing was the employer. There were some issues going around and they stamped it out when they heard about it. So they were very, very helpful. How did your children react? That's, well, initially okay. Um, they, they acted, I mean, um, well, okay, my son didn't react very well, but he was dealing with it. And we had a big family route, or rather I had a big family route about it, and now I don't have pretty much any contact with my son. He hasn't, I haven't seen him for about three years now. And um, I see my daughter occasionally, but only because she's got a couple of kids and she likes... Well, she thinks it's OK for me to see her grandkids, but she won't, she won't have much to do with me. A lot of people said I'm a strong person and it's not easy, but I just have to battle through it. So, you know, I'm lucky that I get to see her kids a couple of times a year. 
I've got the birth certificate now that says I'm female. So that's the, that was the, my final thing that I needed. Um, I'd already had the passport and the driving licence, all that sort of thing. Um, I don't um, go to many trans thing events because basically I just don't see myself as being part of that. And there is a lot of um, people with gender dysphoria who've done the transition to female who just go off and do their own thing and just live their lives as a female and that's that's what we do. We're all different. All our outcomes and all our experiences, all our journeys are totally different and, and I think you know there might be some similarities along the way, but generally they won't they won't be identical. happy with what I've got you know that's it <laughs> not much more to say you know um, and I've jumped through a lot of hoops to become female that's where I am following our conversation with Louise we thought who better to go and speak to boxing promoter Kelly Maloney about the challenges she faced during her transition What, in your opinion, are the most challenging obstacles faced by transgender individuals when they're growing up? I think it's coming to terms with yourself and then having to explain to your family that you're different to your brothers and sisters. Yeah, I obviously come from a family, I was born in the 50s, which it was very hard to be, to be able to explain to my dad. And, I, and to this day, I've never told my dad. When he was dying, I wanted to tell him and I couldn't tell him. It wasn't until my father died that I actually came to terms with myself and admitted and, and started my process of transitioning. What kind of attitudes or perceptions do transgender individuals face in society? I think we face losing our family, losing our jobs, losing friends and being rejected in society. You know, I think society has improved and especially here in Britain it's a lot better but there is still transphobia out there, there's still bigots out there and I've witnessed it from my, my young daughters at school what they've had sort of texts and emails. So what do you think needs to change? I think what needs to change is that we need to get people to realise that this is about your gender not your sexuality we have to com convince people it's all about your gender, your gender is in your head and what you see in the mirror and and, and if we can get people to accept that, I think we're, we're on the way to being much more accepted in society and respected. And lastly, is there anything you would like to say about your own journey? Yes, it was very hard. Um, people think, because they've seen me on TV, they've seen newspaper, it's been very easy. It hasn't, you know, I lost the person I loved most as my ex-wife, my partner. Um, we are good friends, but, you know, she's now got someone else. Um, and, and I'm still in love with her and but I know I can never live with her because of the path I've chosen and it's a path I had no choice over I had I had to do this path so I, I think it's people have to realize we risk a lot to make this journey so it's a journey that you don't just wake up in the morning and say I want to put a dress on a pair of high heels and be a woman this is something that has, hit us. We don't choose to be transsexuals, it chooses us. 
Kelly Maloney, thank you for talking to Amnesty International. Thank you. We last heard from Dr. Kate Stone in our first episode about media perceptions. This time, Kate speaks to us about public perceptions and how she engaged and befriended the same people who openly attacked her. I grew up ashamed of who I was. I spent most of my life hating myself and being ashamed of who I was and thinking that my greatest weakness was just purely who I am. Um, I've since realised that what I thought was my greatest weakness is my greatest strength. I thought if anyone finds out that I'm transgender, I will have to kill myself. It's just, because you can't imagine it is possible to have a life. You can't imagine that you're going to get to live your life as a person. You're gonna spend every day in turmoil. That's what I imagined. It's just like game over as soon as anyone finds out. When I kind of sort of began on this journey, which for me, I think is about eight years ago, I started out by going, I went along a couple of times to where a group of transgender people in the dark corner of a gay pub and I went along and I don't want to say the wrong thing but I really saw um, our lives are very difficult and we don't know who we are and we hide away in this corner of a pub. I was just like, no, this is not a life that I want, you know. I don't want a life where I hide away and I'm ashamed of... Not, no, not ashamed of who I am. I don't think they're ashamed of who they are. Where they feel that society will not let them live the lives they want to lead, which is just a normal everyday life. And that if you actually want to feel comfortable and safe, you have to hide away. I would rather die living than live dying. So I decided that I would just go out into the middle of Cambridge, wherever I wanted to go, sit in a bar, go to a nightclub, take the abuse for several hours of people who are not used to seeing someone a little bit different. And um, no matter what people would do to me, what mattered most to me was that I would go back the next day. So I just very sort of like non-aggressively, very passively asserted my right to just be myself. So there was a nightclub in Cambridge I would go out in a few times and um, and unfortunately one night someone like attacked me, beat me up and pulled a wig off my head and I ended up like in a ball of tears on the floor and, and the bouncers came in and dragged me out by my arms and legs, dragged me through the club and, um, and threw me on the, on the street, took me through the fire exit, dragged me up the steps, threw me out onto the street. The guy who had attacked me was then also thrown out onto the street and then started to hit me. And then the, the police were called by the, the promoter, so the bouncers told the police that it was my fault and I got arrested and I got thrown in the cell. And the police were generally nice but I mean, really apologetic that, that there was a system that they had to go through that meant I was going to have to spend the night in jail and, and my reaction to the club was to go back to the nightclub when I'd go back. But I kept getting pulled off the dance floor and the bouncers would say to me, it's not the first time we've thrown you out of here, is it sir? Which is just horrible. I mean, it's so incredibly degrading. All I'm doing is being in a nightclub with a group of people dancing. That's all I expect to do, nothing else. 
I, I contacted the, the club owners and their reaction was to ask me to come in and do their diversity training or be part of the diversity training. So I ended up sitting in the nightclub early one evening with the bouncers from that nightclub and another nightclub and had 15 minutes to speak to them. I told them about three things. I told them about my work and that I'm a scientist. And I told them about my family, about my children, you know, and the fact that I'm a parent. So I tried to tell them things that enabled them to empathize with me. And then I told them a story about another bar where a similar thing had happened. And their reaction was like, if that ever happens in here, we will sort them out. We're here to protect you. And from then on, they protected me. If I had tried to get them fired, if I'd have tried to get the club fined, you know, if I'd have tried to get anyone arrested, those people would have had their bigoted views reinforced. And I've just learned that vulnerability is my shield and kindness is my sword. And that if I expect anyone to have a less bigoted view of me and understand who I am, then in return, I need to be open to understanding who these people are. If my reaction to a bigot is to be hateful towards them and want them to be punished, then I'm not gonna get anywhere because my reaction needs to be, I need to understand you and who you are. And as a consequence, you will understand me and who I am. And then actually the most likely outcome is that we become friends. Kate went on to share that despite these experiences, she sometimes catches herself being a bigot. It was a few months ago in April, I think it was in April, I think I was in New York. I don't tend to dress very glamorous. So I'm kind of in like my, my like winter army coat and, and, my, and my army boots. Um, and I've got my backpack with all my stuff in it. I tend to carry a lot of stuff, you know. Like I say, there's always a sound system in there. But sometimes I feel like I look like a bit of a tramp. And I'm on the subway and it was really crowded. And there was this Indian lady and she was like staring at me. She was sat there, she's like staring at me. And then I, my mind starts going. I start thinking, oh, she's probably religious. And she's probably like looking at me and thinking like, oh, I'm some like disgrace against God or, you know, just like having all these really strong bigoted views. And I was like all going around in my head. It was horrible. And because I feel that I get stared at a lot, you know, and I tried to not connect my eyes with her, but she kept on staring at me. And then our eyes connected. And then she just gave me a massive smile. And she said, your bag looks heavy. Would you like my seat? And I just felt absolutely mortified. I was so ashamed of myself. So ashamed just to think, I'm such a bigot. And we all have an inner bigot. And until we own that inner bigot um, and recognize that inner bigot, we can't go around being bigoted and so we can't go around complaining about other people's bigotry. You know, we have to recognize that in ourselves. Recognize that bigotry happens in a moment, embrace it, move on, be open-minded, and then connect with the, with the people um, around us, you know. Yeah, otherwise we go around with this sort of like, I'm so perfect, everyone's so mean to me, how can they do this? They need to be punished. It's like, no, <laughs> we need to go around being kind to people. And I discovered my superpower, and my superpower is being myself. And the incredible thing is that every single person has that superpower. Everybody has themselves inside. And if they can find themselves inside, they found their superpower. And if they can connect their inside with their outside, then they can be the most amazing version of themselves. I'm not saying I'm amazing, but I'm saying I have to be the most amazing version of me, which might be pretty mediocre and 
and and non-notable and, and not amazing but for me it's it's amazing right and that's when that's when I had that realization that that what I thought was my greatest weakness was my greatest strength and that was being me Thanks for listening into this episode. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say a huge, huge thank you to all our contributors. And if you haven't heard episodes one and two, you can find them and other Amnesty podcasts on iTunes and at amnesty.org.uk forward slash podcast. 